Welcome to The Noncast, an ongoing conversation around the topics of spirituality and culture for those who find themselves wondering and wandering on the fringe of religion. I'm Nathan Roberts. And I'm Stephen Drager. We're hoping to create a safe space for the rest of us to be honest. So this is for anyone, regardless of their faith background or life circumstance or current musings in regards to life and faith matters. And it's for all the nons out there. So the folks who no longer identify with any one stream of Christianity or may be questioning their commitment to a faith tradition altogether. For those deconstructing and reconstructing and for those who are finally being honest about their questions and feelings, we welcome you. Well, friends, welcome to the Noncast. Thank you for joining us. Um, so in these couple episodes that we're doing right now, we wanted to just kind of fill you in on, on who we are and why we do what we do. Um, last week I shared, uh, bits of my journey into deconstruction and reconstruction and shared a bit of, um, how I've encountered the divine and how I've encountered spirituality and Christianity um, and agnosticism and atheism in my own life. And today I have the honor and privilege of introducing uh, my dear friend, Nathan. Nathan, what are you drinking today? I am drinking a Slaughter Pen IPA from Bike Rack Brewing. It's a local brewery here in Northwest Arkansas. And this is probably what this is probably the beer that I fell in love with from bike rack that like that makes me want to keep going back there so bike rack if you want to sponsor our podcast we welcome that but uh kudos to you and whoever came up with the recipe for slaughter pin it's fantastic I love it I uh only have one beer left in the fridge and I'm not ready to part with it yet so I made my way back to scotch and I'm doing plain and simple 12 year Glenfiddich today oh really that's the only scotch I've had that I actually kind of enjoyed, by the way. Really? I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if it's because I'm like an anti bandwagoner, but I've just I found that I haven't loved any of the like the mainline like brand, like the big brand names for scotch. Um, I tend to really like kind of the smaller distilleries or at least I mean, they're not small, but they're still well known, but not as well known as some of the, the big name ones. Yeah. Yeah. Still that peatiness for me, but yeah, I grabbed a glass of that at, uh, Javier's in Laguna beach. Could not afford to eat there, but somebody, <laughs> somebody passed me, uh, slipped me in a hundred dollar bill and told me to take my wife out for a nice date one time. And so we went to Javier's and I bought myself a glass of scotch and, uh, and, and we went home starving because the scotch was hundred dollars. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you got Glenfiddich, <laughs> but that place is freaking expensive, bro. Um, so if you make your Javier's, way- if you want to sponsor us as well, we'll, <laughs> we'll take your gift cards. Yes. So, um, I am, uh, from LA and so Nathan, if, and when you make your way back to LA, uh, we will need to go to the blind donkey which is a, it's a, it's a whiskey bar and they've got oh. over a hundred different bottles of scotch and whiskeys. Um, their bartenders are fairly knowledgeable about 
scotch and whiskey and just they do a great job uh, pairing to your personal tastes. And is this a speakeasy? Because I feel like anything with the name blind in it becomes a speakeasy. No, but um, the both both locations I've been to, Pasadena and Long Beach, both have a very, very nice um, ambiance. It's it's just uh, like super. One of them is like downstairs in a cellar um, and another one is just like a one on it's just right off the street, but both very tasteful, um, super awesome. And there's something about I got to say, there's something about sharing a drink whilst sharing stories. I think that there's mm. something that probably a, a divine connection there. I think that was <laughs> like being able the, to share the spirit in the spirit. Yes. Yeah. I was just about to say sharing in spirit with spirits. Yeah. So if you are listening and you enjoy partaking in libations, uh, we grab invite you. Yeah. Press pause real quick. Uh, go grab a glass. And when you're ready, join us for Nathan's side of the story here. And um, yeah, Nathan, why don't you share with us a bit about your journey? Yeah, so I'll probably start with saying um, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. Um, I think that Jesus is really compelling and beautiful and transformative in this world, for the world. Um, one of one of my favorite concepts about Jesus is redemption and the stuff about the kingdom, while there's so much that I don't know, the language of the kingdom of heaven um, being a place here on earth, that really I find fascinating. And that feels like the thing in my life that um, I want to continue to invite people into is that there's there's a way of being, a mode of living, a way of being human that um, is freeing and beautiful and loving uh, and can be filled with peace, should be filled with peace. And, um, so those are some of the reasons why I follow Jesus, but I was raised in the church. So I was one of those, uh, pretty typical, um, like middle-class white family stories where, uh, we, we went to church on Sundays. Me and my parents were, were really involved. I myself at three years old was found in my brother's bedroom. I was crying on one of their bunk beds and I was saying, I don't want to go to the devil's place and, uh, that's hell. Um, so apparently my Sunday school teachers were teaching, um, the turn or burn technique, fire and brimstone or something like that in preschool Sunday school class that day. But my oldest brother found me, told me I didn't have to worry about that if I believed in Jesus and made him my Lord. And so at three years old, I, I actually prayed the sinner's prayer. What's, what's commonly called the sinner's prayer. And, um, and received Jesus into my heart. But there was something about that in that time for me that was actually, that felt real. Um, and the reason why I say that, I don't remember being three, but um, my parents tell these stories about me sitting in my car seat in the back of the car while they'd be driving. And they'd have the the moonroof open and I'd be waving to the heavens saying, hi, Jesus. So there was something there's something about me that like I really I really believed it as a three year old. Um really felt like there was um like this this person that somehow fit in my heart and um that because I had done bad things in life, like that loved me enough to not separate 
from me forever or me from, from that thing forever. So, um, three years old, prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, and I grew up a really good kid. I'm the youngest of three boys and all three of, uh, of us boys were quote unquote good kids. Like people, random strangers would come up to my mom in the grocery store and tell her how good of a job she had done raising us kind of thing, because we apparently were very compliant children and very well behaved. And some of that I, I look back on and I've discussed with my parents, um, in some, some of it in great detail, but some of that I look back on and I really see that that's where the beginning of this moral formation was happening in a, in a bad way, at least in a way that affected me in the negative, especially later in life as a Christian. Um, I'll get into that more later, but, but, um, growing up as like a really good kid, I, I had this perception that I I could never allow my bad to be seen. Um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't let people in on the fact that like uh, the bad things that I did and the fear, um, that I still find myself healing from to this day is that if in some way people know that I'm, I've done bad, um, and, and, and shame, shame and guilt are, are interesting in the way that they interact with each other on that one, because guilt is, um, the acknowledgement that something you've done is bad or wrong or harmful shame though is the embodiment of that bad or wrong or harmful thing to where it's no longer I did something that's bad but I am bad and so shame has been with me my entire life um leaving me feeling like I was a bad person if I did certain things and that if I was honest about those things that I did then I would never have a place in the church to serve um that in some way maybe God's love wouldn't be jeopardized for me but certainly the people in my life that their love would be jeopardized. Um, yeah. So the reason why I share some of that is because when I got into middle school and I started serving in the church that I was going to, um, I presented myself like as the perfect, I idyllic kind of middle school student and high school student. I mean, people would tell me, growing up like, Oh, you seem so much older, um, because of the way that you act. And, and so I really prided myself on being more mature than my peers. Um, and I really find that now, as I look back on life, I'm like, man, that's so sad. There's a part of, there was a part of little Nathan that was just suppressed. I think like I didn't allow myself to be a kid because instead I felt like I had to be this all put together grown up in a, in a child's body. Um, or else I wasn't going to be, again, I wasn't going to receive the affections of certain people or, or have opportunities to do things in life. But, but, um, kind of like what you had shared last week, you had gone through a season of your life where you were in the church a lot, you were serving a lot in the church and that that actually brought great joy and a lot of life. That's what it was like for me too. So in middle school, my family, uh, and in high school, actually, we just didn't have enough money for me to go to things like, like camps during the summer or the winter. And so what my church would do though, is that you could apply for a scholarship and a lot of churches have these. Um, but the way that our church did it was if you applied for a scholarship and the church like either paid for your way or they found somebody to sponsor you, you would, you would spend time serving in the church offices or doing something related to like church service. And and so you kind of worked your, worked your like way to camp off in that way. Um, 
and I loved it. I had a friend whose whose mom was an administrative assistant for student ministries, and he had invited me to come and hang out in the offices. And we would do things like, and I'm not exaggerating, we would sharpen pencils because they'd be giving pencils away to the middle school students. Like, and and we went to a pretty large church, so like 200 kids would need pencils as a way of getting them getting them ready for like back to school type of things. Or um, I made buttons like pins that you put on a jacket. We made those one day um, and I had a blast and I, lo- I loved doing it. I loved being in the church offices. I loved being around the pastors and the staff. I felt like um, number one, I just, I had this perception that if you work in the church, all you do is you hang out and you have fun with people all day. So, so that's like, that was my experience and that's, that's what it felt like. And then I felt like I was, I was like on the inside too. So it's really normal for us as humans to, uh, to idolize people who have authority, especially people who, um, like oversee large groups. And so to be buddies with the youth leaders was like a dream come true when you're a really good Christian kid, (laughs) because you want to be in with the pastor, um, that gives you some sort of status, uh, as, as silly as that might sound, but, but yeah, so I loved it. Um, And I remember going to something, I think it was my seventh, seventh grade into eighth grade year summer, like the break between seventh and eighth grade in my pastor, my youth pastor had asked, uh, during his sermon, he was trying to paint an illustration. He said, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember shooting my hand in the air and saying, I want to be a pastor. And like, I didn't, I hadn't had that thought consciously before that moment. That's the first time I ever remember thinking that I wanted to, go into professional ministry. Um, and at the time I thought I wanted to be a middle school pastor. Cause that's all that I really knew. I was like, I, I, again, I was serving in the offices. I was hanging out with these people. We were having tons of fun together. Uh, I remember doing like rubber band wars, you know, like through the yeah. church office. It was just, it was so, so fun. Um, yeah, these people were, were just cool. Like I wanted to live a life like they did and hang out with kids and talk about Jesus. Um, and then when I got into high school, I wanted to be a high school pastor and I'm fast forwarding a bit too much. But then when I got into to college, I just, I was like, okay, I just want to work in the church in a teaching capacity. And it doesn't really matter to me what age group that's with. But, um, so in, in high school, I, I started on the worship team in middle school, uh, as a bass player. And I continued to do that in high school. And even though I wasn't on a microphone at the time, leading songs and singing, I was still seen as one of the worship team leaders because of my involvement and my desire to go into ministry too. Like, I think that vocalizing that uh, I was one of those token kids in the youth group who, who was like, cool, this guy, this kid wants to like do this for his life. So let's take him under our wing and give him opportunities. So even back in middle school, I was uh, given opportunities to like teach and be a part of the the sermon experience. Um, and same thing in high school. Uh, but especially, I would say, especially in high school, um, that whole fear of getting found out for my bad and, you know, doing something that was wrong or that I perceived to be wrong at the time, like to, to actually trust people with that information and be cared for in certain ways. I just kept everything inside because I was afraid of it getting out. And particularly when I was in high school, I was afraid that if my, um, 
if my if my youth pastor found out that I was looking at the swimsuit section in a and the Target ad, um, or the the lingerie section or something like that, if I had actually come clean about things of that nature, I feared that they would say, "Hey, you're not fit for the worship team anymore," or "We're going to mm-hmm. remove you from your leadership position." And um, and, I, and so I ended up dating this girl in high school, and uh, I think I think in the large scheme of things, our our sexual activity, if you will, was very, very mild, like didn't go really much further than me grabbing her boobs kind of thing. But I didn't tell a soul about that. Um, until I remember being a senior and like sharing it with my small group very, very sheepishly. And, and I remember I had a purity ring at the time. And if you're uh, not super familiar with a purity ring, it's, there was a, there was a purity culture movement in like the late nineties, early thousands where, um, there was a large emphasis put on, uh, the youth in America to take a pledge of abstinence before marriage. And so I very, very proudly wore this purity ring. And I remember taking my purity ring off at this small group gathering and telling my small group that I had touched my girlfriend's boobs. And when I put the ring back on, I said to them, um, I'm never going to take this ring off again because I'm never going to do that again. If you ever see me without my ring on, it's because I touched her boobs again and I want you to call me out on it. Well, the reality is I touched her boobs again and I kept my ring on because I was too afraid of the shame that could come with uh, my small group leader or my small group buddies finding out that I'd felt up my girlfriend again. And so um during during that that time though of being with that particular girlfriend like I, okay i was still serving in the church right i told you told you about that already i was going on mission trips we would go to Mex- mexico and do mix, um mission trips um but i fe- i felt at the time like i was just this dirty awful sinner and i couldn't let that get out of the the bag so to speak And, um, what I perceived myself doing at that time in life was just slipping further and further and further away from God. Um, and so when we broke up, when my girlfriend and I broke up, I took to legalism, moralism, fundamentalism. I, um, I remember the day after breaking up with this, this girl talking on the phone to my friend and telling him, I don't know what I'm going to do. She was my whole world. And when I said that, Um, at the time I felt like I heard God say, Nathan, I should have been your world. And, uh, and in my heart at that time, in that moment, I made this commitment to myself and to God that I was never going to let anything come between me and God ever again. And I can pretty safely say that at that stage in my life, what that meant to me was I'm never going to let sexuality come in the way between me and God again. And so at that time, I, I, I decided that I wanted to know the Bible really well. And so I took up reading the Bible, um, pretty fervently, uh, on a daily basis, working my way through it, um, really engaged a lot with prayer and was very, um, demonstrative during worship. And so some of those things I look back on, there are certain disciplines to that. I mean, I, all of it, I guess, was a discipline. But when it came to things like like my fervence and worship, uh, what I mean by that is like I was the guy who 
was in the front of the room standing when nobody else was standing with my arms in the air. And I remember feeling humiliated at times and thinking to myself, no, I need to do this. I need to be an example to the rest of the congregation about what worship truly looks like. Because in my mind at that time, I thought that if you really love Jesus, then you worship with great demonstrative attitude and you clap your hands and you lift, you lift your arms in the air. And that's really what matters most. Um, and so I like everything I did was just incredibly prideful and came with a lot of judgment towards the people around me. Um, and during the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I went to India on a mission trip and let's see, I think that I signed up for that trip in probably February or March, but it wasn't actually until August, like late, late July, early August timeframe. Um, and maybe a week after I signed up for this mission trip, I was at a, a, at a church service with a girl I was dating. And, uh, when, when there was the call to worship, like the time of singing, um, they asked people to stand. I remember getting hit with this overwhelming wave of doubt. And, and I, the, the words still are pretty ingrained in my head. I remember hearing or thinking in my head, none of this matters because none of this is real. Mm. And I was like, what the, where did that come from? And I, I remember I left the room, I went into a hallway um, so that I could be alone with my thoughts and try to pray through it and think through it. And like, I, I couldn't, I remember it just rattled me to my core. And then the next week I was at uh, the church I was going to. And, and this time I wasn't in the front of the room. I was up in the balcony and uh, I remember um, people lifting their hands during the singing time. And I, the thought came to my mind again. Um, these people are just lifting their hand to the ceiling. There's nothing like there's nobody that they're worshiping. These people are all just crazy. And I had never had a thought like that before. Uh, it was incredibly disorienting to me. And meanwhile, you know, I'm one of, one of, uh, I might've actually been the only person of my age group to be playing on the worship team for the main service at this mega church. And I was, I was still a worship leader even. Uh, yeah, actually at that point I'd started actually leading, leading songs on the microphone as well, but I was leading worship in the, in the college ministry. Um, I, I still was like this really good, really moral, really put together Christian, um, I still wanted to be perceived as this idealized Christian role model for other people. And, um, and so to, to, to have these thoughts that this was all just a bunch of hoopla, it was just fake, like just so disorienting. And it didn't, it didn't leave me for like, what was that? Okay. February to August. What are we looking at? Like six months, I guess. Um, Hey, so I was, I feel like, so Cause I mean, what a year before that, that was you right in the front row. Oh, the week before that, probably the morning of, cause that service I was, I was at was with, with that girl was Sunday evening. So Sunday morning, I'm sure I was at church with my hand, my hands in the air as well. Do you feel like there was, there's any correlation between what you were thinking and feeling and this kind of prolonged experience of doing all the right things, right? Modeling for other people what it meant to worship and 
you know, like doing your best to stay pure and all these types of things and not seeing any change in life. Like none of that added up to mean anything. Um, you saying that now makes so much sense at the time. Uh, at the time, no there. And there's a couple of reasons why some of the reasons why is because I hadn't and I'll get into I'll get into this in in a few moments as well. But I hadn't spent time in charismatic land yet, um, and so there wasn't much of me that was believing God for certain physical manifestations, um, like I thought maybe later later that I thought I should be able to receive because I was a good person kind of thing, or mm-hmm. because I was this good Christian. So at the time, at the time, what I really knew Christianity to be was like it was, it was moral, moral formation. And that was pretty much it. It was that the Bible is here to teach you how to go and like be a good moral person in the world. And if you're immoral in some way, it's because you're not an actual Christian. So that shame that you felt needed to be prescribed, like moral, uh, like moral adjustments and like more serving and more in order to fix the you know, it's the thing that's wrong with me, the thing that's bad about me. I've got to do these things to, to fix that, to get yeah. right with, to get right with God. To get right or to stay right as well. Yeah. Because again, I grew up thinking that if I, if I uh, did something then that made me bad, if I did something quote unquote wrong, then it, it made me bad. It was internalized. And if I was bad, I wasn't worthy of love. That's, that's what I grew up believing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, it was like, I've got to stay on God's good side. I've got to do the right things because if I do the right things, God's going to love me. Um, and, and it'll prove that I'm worthy of that love. And I'm, and I, and if I, you know, I, I will stay in God's good graces essentially. Um, but so that the whole like charismatic bit is really close behind all this. So I go to India and we had heard stories during our training. We had a, like several months of training to prepare us for this trip. And during our training, we had heard about miracles happening in overseas locations and in India as one of those places. And so I think there was a story from a previous team that had gone like the year before and like somebody who was blind uh, was prayed for and they regained their sight. So it, like that type of physical manifestation of God happening here on the earth now Mm. at the time it was like 2009. Um, and so when we went to India and, and here I am filled with six months worth of doubt and, and not only, so it was more than that too. And this, this is one of those things where I'm still confused as to what I was actually going through at the time. Uh, At the time I certainly called it spiritual warfare. Um, now I'm not quick to call that call, call anything spiritual warfare to be fully transparent. But, um, what was so odd about that time is I consider myself a pretty compassionate person, pretty empathetic. And I remember being in India, walking through slums and, um, not feeling anything. And it's not like, I didn't, it's not that I felt sadistic. I wasn't happy that these people were in these horrible states of being, I didn't feel sad for them to be in these horrible states of being. It just was like flat affect. I didn't feel anything about the situation. In my consciousness, cognitively, I could say, oh, this is so sad. This is such a horrible, 
horrible position for these people to be in, but I, I felt incredibly disconnected from it as well. So I don't know if like now, as I'm trying to think back through it, could it, could there have been some sort of like just inability at the time to really, uh, rationally think through what I was experiencing. Cause I was younger, like maybe that was it. Maybe there's a bit of shock factor going on to where, uh, like the trauma of seeing what I was seeing didn't allow me to fully comprehend it. And therefore I couldn't mm. actually emote about it. I don't know, but it's the reason why, you know, like I said, I had gone to Mexico. I had had experiences like that already in life where I felt really broken for people and their circumstances and I felt compassion towards them. And so this is why it felt so jarring and so off for me. It seemed like there was actually something wrong with me emotionally during this time so massive doubt, like non, non-characteristic kind of emotional experiences for me, um, really disorienting. And so, uh, during that trip, all I kept looking for was a miracle. And I remember like just grasping at them. We would go into slums and we would pray for people. And we would remember one woman in particular said that she would believe in Jesus if she could carry a pregnancy full term because she had had miscarriages and she wasn't able to have her own baby. And we prayed for her to be able to, to conceive. And I think, actually, I think that she had conceived. I think that what we were praying for was a healthy pregnancy and a full term. And, um, uh, I remember months later we found out that she lost the the child. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember just thinking like, it didn't work. Like God didn't do it. Even though this woman promise that she would give herself to the graces of God, you know, like, but would believe in Jesus. Like God still didn't do it. Why not? Yeah. I know this um, is common, but did you ever have like the thought, um, and for those of you listening, I do not agree with this. Um, but this is a common sentiment among the, at least the conservative charismatic evangelical Christian sect is maybe we, or maybe she didn't have enough faith. And that's why, you know, God didn't heal her. Um, at the time I didn't have that language yet, but yeah, I mean, that came pretty quickly afterwards as well. It was interesting though, too. I remember, I remember again, I felt like I was grasping at straws in a lot of this. I remember praying. I I just, I, okay. It was all about the feels for me at the time. I had mm-hmm. to feel God. And, and if I felt like chills while I worshiped, listening to a worship song, then I associated that with God's presence or the spirit of God coming upon me. And so so, when you say feel, you mean like physiological responses and emotional impulses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as an example, I remember being in worship services at my church at the time. Um, so music's happening and, and I, and I distinctly remember feeling chills like my skin or my hair would stand up like goose goose pimples across my body kind of thing. And I remember having a thought one day that it's as if the wind of God is rushing past me and going to somebody. And that thought was quickly followed up with, no, it's as if the spirit has come directly to me mm. and that's why I'm having this experience. And so, um, music is personal. Like you've said, it's emotional. It, it does things physiologically to our bodies that we're unconscious of. Um, but for me at that time, music was my direct means of connecting with God. And through music or through times of singing, it was really easy for me to access what felt like God's presence or faith. 
I mean, you had told a story, I think last, last time about, um, like experiencing God as a middle school student. Yeah. You had some sort of encounter and I had that as well. I was at camp my seventh grade year. And I remember we were singing the song indescribable by Chris Tomlin and the lyrics, you see the depths in my heart and you love me the same. Like I just, we sang that. It was the first time I'd ever heard the song and I bust out weeping. And that was the first time that I had had some sort of emotional and somatic encounter um, during musical worship. But from there forward, I always associated those kind of experiences with the presence of God. And uh, I'm sure there were times. Yeah, I mean, there were times where it happened in in high school as well, at the very least at camp, because for whatever reason, it seems like magical (laughs) things happen at camp. Um, And certainly into my college years. And so I remember in India uh, grabbing my grabbing my iPod and wanting to listen to worship songs. We had a really like a three hour bus ride both ways ahead of us to get to this one school that we were going to go and help paint. And I like turn on my iPod and there's, I don't know, like 10% battery life left on it. And I thought I'd had a charging the entire night. And I was so pissed that I wasn't going to have my outlet to connect with God. And somehow, and this is, this is actually really odd to me because that thing probably should have died within a half an hour. And it lasted like seven hours at 10% battery life. And I remember it dying on me. (laughs) Well, at the time I thought so. Um, But then it died on me about a half an hour before we got back to the compound where we were staying. And I remember just being so angry with God, like what you would make it last six and a half hours. You couldn't just make it last another half an hour and like get me all the way home. Like then I would, then I really would have believed that you're real. And I kept looking for the physical or to the physical to see God. And, um, because I wasn't seeing, seeing God show up in some sort of physical manifestation, either through healing or through like the sustenance of my iPod at 10% for seven hours, I was upset about it. And so that's, that was the entire trip. I remember literally being in bed one night thinking to myself, like, just, just admit it, just say that there's no God and then be done with it. Just give Mm in. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't let myself do that. Like I just, I thought that if I said that, that that would mean the end of all things for me, you know, I, Mm -hmm. so I held on as much as I could to, uh, hope or, or belief that there was truly a divine out there. Um, now I'm going to fast forward a little bit because like two weeks after reentry, uh, I remember having this very emotional kind of experience where everything caught up with me and I just wept for like an hour straight and it was really refreshing for me. I was able to, I was able to feel again is how I, how I would have worded it, how I do did word it. Um, and I really felt like me having tears was God's presence showing up again in my life. Um, and shortly thereafter went on a, a trip with my college group to, to San Diego. And while I was, while I was there, I was sharing with a friend about, um, all the doubt that I'd had during the summer. And she was like, have you ever heard the dime story? And I was like, no, what's the dime story? And long story short, the dime story is that somebody, um, when they needed most to know that God was real, like dimes would just show up randomly for them in their life. And so I remember, um, going to bed that night saying, God, I don't need a dime, but if you want to give me one, that'd be really cool. And so we're walking through the streets of San Diego the next day. And, uh, I remember turning around to say something to people. And then I saw this flash 
and I heard a piece of metal hit the ground and the guy who was behind me kicked the thing and it hit against a wall and came spinning to a stop and it was a dime. And I was like, oh my God, it's a dime, it's a dime. And the <laughs> people I was with, the way I was with, they were like, so what? It's a dime. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. And I like, tell them the whole story. And, and I could have sworn to anybody that that was evidence that God was real because there was some sort of physical manifestation of God now showing up in my life. And it might be through a dime, but, but by golly, you know, like that was God saying that God loved me. And, and then for years I would have really weird, I would find dimes in the oddest of places or, or where there wasn't a dime before there would be a dime. And so lots of interesting things like that, that continue to uh, further ingrain this idea that like God would show God's self through, or at least God's presence through, uh, through like a coin. Um, now all of that then took me into my charismatic days, uh, because now I was starting to get into a place within Christendom where God does manifest in in the phys, in physical reality, um, be that through somebody being healed or through something like a dime or other stories that I heard were like feathers falling from the ceiling. And so um, at that time I started... Wait, what? Feathers falling from the ceiling? Yeah, I, I had a friend who like... It was a like uh, I think it was white birds or something like that were uniquely significant to her. Like it reminded her of God's peace or something like that. And she said that whenever she felt like she needed a reminder of God's presence most in her life, that she would like see a white bird or something like that. And that one night in particular, she was having a really difficult time um, knowing that God was with her and for her. And that all of a sudden a feather floated down from the ceiling in her bedroom. She Um, was inside. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, so pair that then with, um, with the church like Bethel, who then was releasing videos around this time of what they were calling glory clouds forming in their church during worship services. And like, like what, what, what looked like gold dust clouds just like falling from the sky. And I remember watching those videos on YouTube and being like, this is all real. This is like, like, this is normal for Christians or this should be. And, and man, I was, I was robbed of all this growing up. And so, so, um, I then became very charismatic, spent a lot of time in, uh, like prayer services or worship services in people's house where homes where we would just sing songs like short, short repetitive songs for hours on end. And we'd pray for people and for deliverance and for healing. And I remember one, one night praying for a guy who had had cerebral palsy from birth and had a deformed hand because of it. And us praying that he would be healed and like spending probably 45 minutes to an hour asking that God would, uh, would heal this young man. And of course nothing happened. Um, there's only one time. And so maybe it's fair that I share this story too. There's only one time where, I still don't know what to do with it um, beyond saying like chalking it up all just to an actual miracle, like God actually healing somebody. And that was uh, a very good friend of mine at the time who had had lupus for a number of years. Um, and periodically I would pray with him for healing. And uh, one night in particular, 
we prayed probably for like 40 minutes. And the reason why we prayed that long is because like something happened, like something actually physically happened. Um, man, the story is like, it's probably longer than, than what we have time for necessarily in this episode. But, um, he went and got a blood test two days later. So it was a Tuesday night when we prayed for him two days later, he had a blood test and the next, the following Tuesday, he got the results that he didn't have any antibodies of lupus in his body. Like, like he was lupus free entirely. There was no trace of it at all. Dang. And to my knowledge, uh, we're not, we're not um, in contact anymore, but to my knowledge, he's been lupus free to this day. And lupus isn't something that you're, you can actually be cured from it. There's no known treatment for healing. Um, and so it was really bewildering to his doctors, of course. And we really did feel like, well, God, God healed this guy. Like that's, that's the answer. It's not that there's a medical reason. And, and that actually speaks to another personal issue for me, which is that I had at the time also chalked literally everything up to the spiritual. So I didn't believe, uh, in a lot of like mental disorders, I wouldn't say at the time. I would have said, no, that's just a demon manifesting itself through that person. And nobody challenged me on that. I, I guess I didn't talk about that openly a whole lot, but the the circles, those more charismatic circles that I was running in, um, further perpetuated those thought, those thought cycles as well. Um, because if I went to a conference or a church service, um, and somebody had something that maybe we would say, oh, that's schizophrenia or that's. Um, I know this isn't the DSM's term for it anymore, but something like multiple personality disorder um, or borderline personality. Like I would have chalked those things up to demonic activity and the places, the places that I was spending my time would have as well. So kind of just group think, you know, uh, echo chamber type of stuff. Um, so that was me going into the end of college and Right out of college, uh, I went straight from college into seminary. Seminary is where people who want to be pastors go and um, study, basically, to to become people who are uh, informed in a number of different ways about Christianity, the tradition of Christianity, the scriptures. Um, so it's like a, it's a master's program for people who want to go work in the church in some way, oftentimes. Right as I was starting that, I started a job at a church that had a pretty charismatic bent, but it was a lot younger. Um, like it was, it was pretty new. I think I came on during their nine month mark. And so I was surrounded with that. And a lot of that, we would spend like an hour in silence sometimes, um, like as staff members, just trying to listen to the spirit. Um, we would, we would host gatherings like worship gatherings where it was just like really simple, repetitive singing songs, you know, uh, over and over and over again until something happened. Um, it was a really, really emotional experience. I would say that for that time of my life, like God was either present and I could speak to it because I felt something emotionally kind of like, you know, what I had been mentioning earlier with, with worship music or God wasn't. And I, and eventually I found myself in a place where I was like, man, all I'm doing is chasing an emotional experience and I'm not actually pursuing a deeper understanding or knowledge of Jesus. And that was simultaneously 
um, for me happening alongside my theology classes where uh, there was some skepticism about all the things that the charismatic church was presenting as like actual things happening, you know, like in my, in my classes, there was just uh, what I would say now is probably a healthy amount of skepticism. Like, just don't believe it's all God, you know, like pray about that, test that, uh, don't get caught up in the hype or the emotion of the moment. And so whereas my pendulum had swung really far to one side, now I found it swinging back the, to the other side and like, um, really trying, really feeling again, disoriented, but trying to figure out how does all of this fit together and simultaneously. So I'm working at a church, right? That's a charismatic church. I'm, I'm finding myself no longer believing all of the stories about the charismatic movement. Um, and the pastors actually that I was working for as well, they were telling stories from the stage about healings that had taken place that hadn't actually happened. And so I was like, well, I know that person and they're, they're still receiving treatment for their cancer. They're, they're not cancer free or, uh, well, no, that woman's eye was not actually healed of cataracts. Like she still has to go see the eye doctor and have cataract surgery. And you just said from the stage that that woman's cataracts is now gone. So there were things like that happening as well, where I was like, oh, how much of this is just fake? And I remember going to conferences and, and pastors would be, um, during like a quote unquote ministry time at the end of, of the gathering, they'd be saying somebody with back pain is getting healed right now. Somebody with knee need like you you had arthritis in your knee and now, now you're pain free and you're going to be able to dance around the room. And, and like people were getting up and out of their chairs and waving their hands and saying that that was them. And I remember thinking to myself is like, is all this just a show? Are these people planted? Are these people, are they faking it? Like, do they want it? Because I'd had a friend who had grown up in the charismatic church in a Pentecostal church, in fact, and he had said, these people are good intentioned. They want to experience God's presence so bad that they're willing to pretend as if they are in order to actually have some sort of encounter. So they'll lie to themselves mm. and tell them that this thing is actually happening when it's not. And and like I resonated with that because to some degree I found myself doing that as well. I remember having an, an, a leg injury and being prayed for and telling people it's gone. The pain is gone. I can walk around. It's fine. And in the moment I actually thought that it was gone. And then like maybe within 10 minutes of me walking around again, I was like, Oh no, the pain's not gone. And I was way too ashamed to go back to those people and say like, Hey, just so you know, it didn't work. <laughs> Your prayers didn't work. You didn't have enough faith. Oh, no, I'm, dude, kidding. We, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We could do but, an entire episode on like prayer for healing and like from the perspective of the person being prayed for and how yeah. much pressure that puts on that person to then be healed. Yeah. There's, there's actually a study on that when, with cancer patients and the remission rate is lower for people who were being prayed for than who, it was for people who were not being prayed for, who knew they were being prayed for, who knew. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because there was pressure on them to, to, be to get better. Yeah. Yeah. And, probably somatically their body like that just created an extra level of stress that didn't allow their immune system to thrive yeah. as they were trying to fight off the cancers. So, um, yeah, we could, we absolutely could. Um, so all of that stuff though, all of those constructs started crumbling and then simultaneously I had started in at a program at my, at my seminary, um, called the Institute for Spiritual Formation and spiritual formation 
it was like an, an entire extra, it was like my brain, like my skull got opened up and a new brain got put in. And it was like, I had, uh, I saw things entirely different. It just gave me this incredible, um, outlook on all of life basically and all of Christianity. And whereas there were certain groups of people within Christendom that at some point, at one point I would have said those people aren't actually Christians. Um, and I have a, I have an example of that as well. I remember, um, and I'll get back to my point, but I remember, I remember having a, a, a debate basically with some friends. Uh, and at one point I did not believe that if you listen to secular music, that you were actually following Jesus, because if you were really following Jesus, you wouldn't want to listen to secular music. You would only want to put Christian music in your head. And if you, and this was another part of our debate. And if you masturbated, you were definitely not a Christian because you were, um, violating like sexual purity laws. Mm -hmm. And, and so that, that's where I was at one point. So that, um, I offer that to, cause now I look at that and I'm like, that was, that's, it's ridiculous. Uh, I can't believe I used to think that way, but I also look at it like, Oh, I'm so glad I've grown. Um, but I, I say all that because I can speak to, I can speak to what it's like to think that way. I remember what it's like to be so prideful and arrogant that you think that you are, that you're in when, and nobody else is. And I can acknowledge, I can see that what was really going on there for me and I would assume for others and maybe that's not entirely fair, but that all that we're really trying to do is because we feel so insecure in our doubts uh, about our doubts and we feel so insecure in our faith. We're trying to convince ourselves that we're right so that we feel like we're in. Um, So I can speak to all that. I can speak to what it's like to run in charismatic circles and then to question the entire system and to take it apart, to deconstruct it and to be like, yeah, just, there's something off here. I don't, I don't think I can trust these people. Um, I don't think that these stories are all as, um, I don't think that, I don't think that they're happening. Like people are saying they're happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but being an ISF in particular and going through the spiritual formation classes, it opened me up and exposed me to all sorts of different expressions of the church. In one of my classes we had to do, different ways of, um, or we had explored different spiritual disciplines. And so some people took like praying the, um, praying the rosary. Um, and this is a, you know, this is an evangelical seminary, but somebody's like praying the rosary. Here's how you can use this as a spiritual discipline. Another person covered iconography. Like here's how icons and images can actually help you enter into worship. Um, I remember somebody else covering, um, Oh, or what? One of the things that I covered was a type of um, prayer called Taze prayer. It's like a sung, a sung prayer. And it's just a meditative, repetitive, um, sung line, like a mantra or a chant. Uh, and it happened happened to originate in a place in Taze, France, and that's why it's called Taze Taze prayer. Um, but like gatherings started to happen with Taze worship happening as the center of the whole gathering. And you're not singing really more than like five or six words in a, in a, um, in a song. And this would go on for like an hour, but it was done with the intention of, um, if we, if we meditate on this, perhaps maybe our heart will start to take the shape of the thing that we're praying. Uh, I had to read through a Wesleyan 
a Wesleyan um, liturgy. And I remember that completely opening up my perspective on the fact that there were other liturgies that could be found to be helpful and worshipful um, in Christianity than what I knew to be like the quote unquote right way of, of worshiping or the right, right way of doing church at church services. Um, and then I, I was in spiritual direction and in spiritual direction, I might've explained this in a previous episode, but, uh, in case I didn't, or if you missed it, spiritual direction essentially is where you sit with another person, a trained spiritual director, and their job is to be, um, a loving presence to you and to help you discern what God might be saying at that time of your life. And so I started participating in spiritual direction and I started being trained as a spiritual director. And so not only was I getting to sit with people who were this loving presence who were helping me listen to God, but then I also had the opportunity to start doing that for other people as part of my program. Um, I had to go on retreats in solitude. Uh, I had to do three 48 hour retreats in, in silence and solitude. And then I actually went on a three week long retreat in solitude where I went to the state of Washington. I met with a therapist who was also trained as a spiritual director once a day for 90 minutes. And the rest of the time I spent in a cabin alone on Fox Island. Um, and if that sounds like hell to the listener, it absolutely was. It was so difficult to be alone. It was so hard to, to be away from my girlfriend at the time, my now wife. Um, I mean, and, and, oh, I should also add that while you were alone in your, in your cabin or in your house that you were staying at, you're, you were supposed to do a type of, um, a type of therapeutic practice, which is the evacuation of the subconsciousness. So basically anything that comes to mind, you were supposed to say out loud or write down. Um, and there is a practice of envisioning your parents sitting in a chair and you having the ability to say anything and everything you've ever wanted to say to them. And, uh, I mean, it was just, it was literally life altering. It was excruciating. It was exhilarating. Uh, it was kind of all of those things in one. And, um, that retreat, that three week retreat for me was massively pivotal in my, uh, and, and spiritual direction has been as well, but just massively pivotal in my relationship with God. Uh, prior to going on the retreat, I'd had a, um, a professor challenge us as a, a class and say, I want you to pray your most raw, authentic prayers. Don't filter anything. And he then proceeded to tell us that his spiritual director told him that uh, cussing was his his spiritual language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so literally what our, what our professor was telling us to do is, um, cause part of our, part of our assignments was like to go and do a, these different prayer projects. And, uh, and he was telling us like our prayer project was to go and cuss in prayer. We were, that was our assignment was like, just go and be honest. And, um, I remember the first time I cussed in prayer, it, sent shivers down my spine, like head to toe. I was terrified that if I said, and I don't remember what it was, uh, what the word was that I said, but I was just so, so afraid of saying that word during prayer as if it was different from saying it any other time in my life. Um, but when I cussed, nothing happened. The, you know, like lightning bolts didn't come down out of heaven and strike me and 
the earth didn't open up and swallow me whole and tsunamis didn't come crashing through my, my window. Like the world continued to spin. God's love wasn't threatened. And, and, and what I, what it opened up for with me was like, Oh, it's, it's safe. I can actually just be fully honest with God. Mm. And so there was a lot of that on the three week. Uh, there was, I, everything was unfiltered. It was all incredibly raw and honest. And, um, and I think, I think for the first time I started to actually believe that Jesus loved me, uh, regardless of any kind of, regardless of what I did or didn't do. Um, and my wife, uh, she has been somebody who has she has been a constant reminder of that for me, a constant reminder of God's love because she, my wife does an incredibly exceptional job at just loving unconditionally. Um, and I have been a total ass at times and by all accounts and purposes, like not deserving of any kind of grace from her or love. Uh, and yet she's like always constantly ready to forgive and to love and to remind me that I'm loved. And, and I, I admire that so deeply within her. And she was actually a huge part of the three week retreat because she surprised me in Washington. I had one weekend off where I had like 32 hours of free time and, um, she flew to Washington and surprised me and we spent 32 hours together. And I mean, it was, it was glorious. We, we talked about that time as it we're like, that was like our honeymoon. Um, there was so much, so like such a deep bond and connection with her during that time. And there were like God, I really do believe that God used Nicole at that time in my life to give me a glimpse as to what God's love is actually like for me. Um, so everything was different from then on shortly thereafter. Like when, once I was done with my classes, I ended up getting a job at the church that I worked at before moving out to Arkansas. And what was, what was difficult about that is that I found myself in a job, um, no longer believing the things that I had once believed. Like I, I just, I was working at an evangelical church and I was no longer evangelical. Like that was the big thing. Um, and I was seeing what to me now feel like a lot of gaps in the story of Christianity that I had settled for, for a time. And, um, and I kept wanting to invite people into like deeper awareness, deeper consciousness about there's other ways of thinking of these things. Um, and being at a church, working at a church while you're going through deconstruction and reconstruction um, is a really difficult thing to do when you're on staff and you're supposed to play a part. Whether it was perceived or they were actually there, there was this, I felt as though I was supposed to play a certain role or fulfill a certain role in people's lives as the worship leader. Mm. I felt like I was supposed to say certain things and get people excited and hyped up on Sunday mornings. And, and I just had resolved really early on that that's not what I was going to do or who I was going to be. But I think that the most difficult part about it was not feeling like I could be honest about the things that I was starting to question and to deconstruct and the things that had been changing. Um, me on personal and theological levels. And, and a lot of it was, I was afraid that I would get fired if I was honest. 
Um, and I think that that's true for, I think a lot of people experience that, um, who find themselves working in churches and also simultaneously going through deconstruction. I think it can be really, really isolating if you don't have a friend like I found in you, Stephen, to actually be honest with about the things you're, you're questioning. And, and, and it can actually feel really threatening and really scary to have those thoughts and those questions because you hear stories or you've heard stories about people who, because they've stopped thinking a certain way, actually did lose their job yeah. and now no longer have an income and can't find work in a church because uh, nobody will hire them in light of the fact that they were honest. Um, and the church doesn't really prepare you to do much of anything except for working in the church. And so getting hired for stuff outside of the church feels next to impossible when all that you have is ministry experience. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and you're like, yep, that's me. I'm in a church right now. I've deconstructed, I'm reconstructing, but like, I no longer, I no longer believe the things that my church believes. Um, I'm so sorry. Cause I know that, that can feel like a really, a, a really lonely place. Um, it can be really challenging, feel very, very isolating. And, um, but I certainly wish that there and hope for you that there's somebody that you can, that you can be honest with about your changing and evolving beliefs and, and find a safe, safe space and safe place to be able to express those. Absolutely. I think that is one of the most important things, um, especially for, yeah, Christians who are attending a church and are part of a church community or is finding that safe space and that freedom to be able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm all in and not be met with a bunch of reasons why you should be in or, um, any condemnation or, or the guilt. threat of losing. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, just the, I think we all need that safe space to be able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm not sure I'm on board with this or, um, you know, I, I don't think, this is actually working for me. Um, and to, yeah, to not be met with any animosity or, or, um, threat of exclusion. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was six months ago. Now at the time that we're recording this six months ago is when I resigned from my job and my wife and I moved, uh, from California to Arkansas and, um, Moving out here, I I had told her I don't want to go to church for six weeks, and we ended up going to church the second week. But so be it. Um, but I needed I needed a, I needed time. I needed a like space to heal and to to process. And there were there were moments during that time of us not like having a community that we belong to, um, where something two very interesting things were happening simultaneously. Number one, I felt like I was getting to pastor the people that I was working with, um, in ways that I never had the ability to pastor people in the church. Um, cause we were just having these really, I was working in a coffee shop. We were having this very real, raw, honest, transparent, life-giving, robust conversations about God and questions that we had of faith and, and who, who is God and, uh, what is the Bible? And, you know, just like, really great stuff and people feeling comfortable opening up and sharing some of their, their deepest and darkest secrets with me. And I felt like, like, Oh, this is, this is like what it is to be a pastor. And and then at the same time, I found myself asking myself the question, am I an atheist now? 
because, <laughs> because God had changed so much. My perception of God had changed so much and I was no longer in a place that was forcing me to continue to recite certain, um, certain mantras about God. Like I had, I had the freedom, the ability, uh, to just think for myself is kind of how, what I mean by that. And, um, and every time that I'd find myself asking that question, am I an atheist now? It was like really evident very quickly to me. Like, no, Jesus is, I actually think that like, like the way of Jesus is literally the best way to be human. And that's actually what I find myself fighting for more now than ever. Um, so that kind of catches us up to now, like real time where I'm at currently. I, I'm constantly asking questions. Um, I sat down with, with a pastor at the church that we've been going to and basically shared everything with him about where I was at theologically. And is that a concern if I wanted to serve? And I was told like, Nope, you're totally welcome to still be, you know, in service in this church. And that felt really amazing to me to know that, uh, cause that's the way that I, I've always envisioned the church being, um, uh, like you, you can serve no matter what, um, because everybody has a place in the kingdom of, of God. But I've also spent a lot of time reflecting on my life and how did I get to where I'm at now? Uh, and so much of it is in the story that I just shared, but I think back on my life, um, like all the way to being a kid, being in the car with my grandma and she turned on uh, worship music and it was, it turns out that it was Hillsong, but I remember listening to it and it was probably only a couple of years old, but I remember listening to it thinking, Oh my goodness, why do we have to listen to all this old music? Like, why can't we just listen to something cool and modern? And, uh, me dabbling, not dabbling, but being immersed in like the charismatic church and movement for a time, that was, that was progress for me because I didn't grow up with that. I found myself like grasping for something more, something else, something that was next. Um, and then growing out of that and into this more pragmatic mindset of like, does this make sense scientifically? Does this like, does this align with hard facts and evidence or, you know, uh, so, so then that felt like progress out of charismatic movement into more of a pragmatic way of being, human and, and thinking things. I've just, I've always wanted to, and I've always found sermons the most fascinating when they taught me something that I didn't know. Um, I've always found myself looking for, for what else is there to know? Like what else haven't I thought about? What, what has been, what's been withheld from me for some reason? Um, can we please, can we please consider moving beyond where we're at right now? Can we please do something new? Can we, so I found myself throughout life, even in, small ways, like wishing that there was different music playing on the radio, like always wanting something new and not being satisfied with just like, Oh, I know enough now, or that's familiar. That feels safe and comfortable. So we'll just stop right there. Like that's, that's never been enough for me. I've realized. And so I think that's a big part to you. I've, I, I've committed to myself to be a lifelong learner. And I think that's a big part of why I find myself in this place now and I guess the last thing that I'll end with is for probably a decade now, the unity of people has been an incredibly important theme for me. Um, I, I remember having grand visions of bringing churches together as a, like an 18 year old, um, multiple churches in an area 
who would all be worshiping together under one roof and learning together under one roof for the sake of unifying people throughout its community. Um, and now like that's still unification is still really important to me, but now it's on more of like a grand ecumenical or church as a whole, like a broad church level where, um, I, I long to see the day where, where we don't call each other names within Christianity and we don't ostracize certain groups and like basically just where everybody belongs because we're all following Jesus, um, regardless of the tradition that we're following in order to do that. So I long for the day where the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic and the evangelical come together under the same roof and worship Jesus together, acknowledging that while all three of those groups have different theologies and ways of viewing God and the scriptures and, and the crucifixion and the resurrection and like the story that we know to be Christianity. I long for the day where we're all doing that together without judgment of one another, but like giving space and permission to one another to, Oh, that's, that's your revelation of God. Okay. You get to have that. I'm not going to judge you for that. I'm not going to say that you're a heretic or an apostate or you don't belong. Yeah. Or that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or that yeah. my way's better. Yeah. Well, and, and I had said in a, a number of episodes ago too, I think that I consider myself more of a mystic now. And a big part of that is because the things that I think I know today, I probably won't agree with next week or in two weeks. Like I just, I think that I will always be deconstructing and reconstructing my faith. And, and there have been so many times in the past that I've felt really certain of, of things, um, whether that's something that I thought God said to me that then was very evidently wrong. There were so many girls that I could have sworn God said, this is your wife. And (laughs) I just wanted to hear that, you know, like that's what I heard because that's what I wanted to hear. Um, and, and so I, I just, I don't know whether it's something like that or it's something like, like, needing or believing in miracles and praying for God to manifest him, God's self through healing in some way. Um, and then coming to a place now where I'm like, nah, I'm not, I'm not as like, that's not as important to me. I don't need that. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm, I'm always going to be changing. I'm always going to be evolving. I'm always going to be, um, whatever I believed yesterday, I probably, I'll probably change my mind on tomorrow. And I'm totally okay with that. Dude, when you were telling your dime story, I was like, oh, this is the perfect setup. I was waiting for it. I thought you might, yeah, you know, they told me I was going to find a dime and I'm walking down the street and I saw my wife. <laughs> You've been holding on to that for a while. Oh man, that was immediately, I was like, oh, please tell me, please tell me you're going to say, and I saw my wife. <laughs> That's funny. Oh man. Well, um, in, in closing, what do you, if you were able to pinpoint a a time in your journey where you realize that your your beliefs or your faith practices weren't working anymore um if you can share that and then second what role is faith and or christianity because you said at the beginning you're you would identify as christian so what role does christianity now play in your life so to answer the first question is probably like a year and a half or two years ago where I realized that I was in the midst of deconstruction. Um, although I also realized, Oh, but this has been happening for probably five years. 
And I'm just now realizing that it's happening. Mm. Um, I, I do mark my start in ISF, my start in the study of spiritual formation as the beginning of my deconstruction because it started to, to take apart all the things that I had grown up believing Christianity to be. Like I grew up believing that there was a right way to follow Jesus. And then I was introduced to all of these ways over the last 2000 years of following Jesus, all of which I began to see value in and feel like, Oh, any one of these can belong, should belong, does belong. Um, but like a year and a half ago or two years when I found myself hiding certain podcasts from people, like I would be worried about my phone lighting up and showing the podcast that I had been listening to in the car on the way in uh, my way into work that's when I realized something's off here. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm hiding things from my employer and my coworkers. And, um, and the reason why I am is because I'm afraid of the, the, the consequences if they find out the truth about who I'm listening to, what I'm learning, uh, how I'm, how I'm changing my beliefs. I think that answers the first question. Yeah. And then uh, what role does Christianity play in your life now? Yeah, I still put everything through a Jesus lens, actually. Um, That lens just looks different now than it used to. Because before, Christianity to me was about being a good moral person. And um, I'm really disinterested in that now. I I don't think that Christianity is about being moral. Um, and I think that part of why I think that is because I, I actually think that a lot of what the church says is moral or is immoral is all a construct um, in order to keep people in check and aligned. And it's really easy in the West, in the Western church, to to focus on people um, and their personal sins or their personal wrongdoings. And to um, capitalize on that and to build theologies around guilt because we are a culture that has been working to avoid guilt. But especially um, especially in a more like postmodern era, I think I think that the church has taken even more to guilt and shame as a technique to try to keep people aligned or as a as the evidence of the fruit. Uh, of following Jesus. And when I, when I now read the scriptures or think about, um, politics or, uh, economics or like living life with the people that I'm in a community with, it's now way more about, um, does this bring dignity to another person? Does this, does this uh, remind them of the fact that they are an image bearer or in some way does it take away from their capacity to be fully human? I have examples, but those are probably pod, different podcasts for us. You know, I'm thinking about like how my how my views have changed on homosexuality, how my views have changed on women and leadership in the church. And um, those being obviously two hot topics in the church today, but me finding myself in places of affirming both uh, now and, and that coming because I have seen Jesus in a new way and the way in which I now find Jesus feels a lot more sensible 
the sensibility of it to me, I'm like, oh yeah, this makes more sense in, in light of the whole story mm. and like why Jesus was killed and um, what he, like why his work and his message was so revolutionary for so many people. So all of it, I guess is my answer. Like I still, I still actually think that it, I put life through that filter, through that lens. It just now doesn't look like guilt and shame. Now it looks like, um, growing in like acceptance of people and embracing and moving towards love. And then lastly, um, anything that you would want anybody listening to know for their own journey? You'll hear me say this a lot. It's, it's before anything else you're loved. Um, and you're not loved because you you did anything good or bad. Like you're just loved because you are, it's a part of, it's a part of what you received, uh, in, in, in your creation, like in the womb in utero. Like I, I actually truly believe that God loves you just by virtue of being human by existing by virtue of existing. And so when I hear, when I hear pastors say, uh, or teach messages of like, grace being this thing that you didn't deserve. What I hear a lot of time is what's being implied is, um, in fact, you deserved the opposite and you'll hear that a lot. And in most churches, like you deserve death, you deserve damnation, you deserve separation from God forever. Like, no, I don't think that has anything to do with whether or not God loves creation. Like God, God just loves humans and creation because that's the state that they were created in a state of love. And, uh, this, I definitely would want to talk about more on another podcast, but my picture of that is like a good parent. If you were to ask a good parent with a newborn child, a good parent. Okay. If you were to ask a good parent with a newborn child, does your child deserve your love? They might look at you like you've got three heads and be like, what is them deserving love have anything to do with it? I love this child because it's a part of me. I love this child because it belongs to me. I love this child because um, it is in me and I am in it. You know, like it's not a matter of deserving. It's a matter of just, it's a state of being. And so um, that would be like probably the thing in my life that it's, it's, it's the sign I want to get hanging in my house, you know, before is, is before anything else you're loved. I want people when they come over to my home to be able to see that and to read that and to know that. And to be reminded of it when they come and when they go. Uh, and it's it's because I think that if we move more towards like more towards that, I just think that we'll be more fully human. Nothing else? No, oh, it was excellent. Well, if you are tuning in, thank you for uh, hanging in there with, with me as I um, processed out loud and, and reflected on so much of my journey. Uh, my hope in some ways that this gives you language to be able to speak out your own story or that it gives you a place where um, you don't feel so alone. If any of this resonates with you, I'm happy about that. But I also hope that there's just space for you to be able to share your story and your progression with somebody. I hope that for you. And I know that Stephen does as well. We're honored to be a part of your journey, whatever that might look like at this time. And uh, as always, if you have found this to be helpful or challenging in any way, uh, we'd love for you to share it and to 
to express your thoughts on it and to to sh- talk about it with your friends or with your family or with your churches and um, to allow this to be a way that we all are wrestling together and trying to work out what it is to follow Jesus. Also, little little commercial, um, like, uh, subscribe, share, comment the podcast for the sake of us becoming more discoverable as well because of the way that algorithms work within the whole podcast world. It really does help uh, our exposure to other people. If you are liking and subscribing and commenting um, and sharing this with other folks, and um, we we certainly would love to grow in um, in our audience, but uh, we we also just want to remember that there might be some people out there who need some people to journey with them on their way and might find this to be a place that helps them to do that. And so, with all of that, our brothers and sisters, we wish you once again grace and peace this week.